I'm Corey Astle. And I'm Kyle Salmon. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast about conservative ideas and thinkers. We explore what it means to call yourself a conservative, where conservatism has been, and where it's going. Each week, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. Join the conversation by liking us on Facebook or following us on Twitter at ConsMinds, at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 81, we read Man vs. the Welfare State by Henry Hazlitt, published in 1969. Henry Hazlitt was born in Philadelphia. His father died when he was a baby, and his mother remarried and moved the family to Brooklyn. Hazlitt attended public schools there and three semesters at City College, but left to help support his mother. At the age of 20, he got a job at the Wall Street Journal as a stenographer and wrote his first book, Thinking as a Science. After serving in World War I, he would go on to write for The Nation, Newsweek, and The New York Times, serving as the principal editorial writer on finance and economics at the Times from 1934 to 1946. He wrote more than two dozen books, mostly in defense of free market economics. Hazlitt died in Fairfield, Connecticut in 1993 at the age of 98. But before we get into that, let's let's talk about another podcast for a minute uh, from our friends at ISI. Conservative ideas are no longer welcome on most college campuses, or anywhere else for that matter. If you're a conservative college student or professor, then you already know what I'm talking about. If you're hungry for great conservative ideas, look no further. Check out Conservative Conversations with ISI podcast today. Presented by the Intercollegiate Studies Institute, this podcast is a series of in-depth conversations with leading thinkers of the most important issues facing conservatism. Join Johnny Burka and James Davenport to dig into the world of conservative ideas with thinkers like William F. Buckley Jr., Richard Weaver, Yuval Levin, Ross Douthat, and more. To listen, go to isi.org slash podcast or any of your favorite podcast platforms. So I think what Henry Hazlitt here has given us is a pretty plain-spoken, pragmatic explication of kind of how the world works when it comes to deficits and debt and finance and governments and spending and taking out uh, billions and now in our day, trillions and trillions of dollars in debt. He says, in the last generation... Politicians and governments. Now, again, I'm sorry, sorry, let me backtrack to say this was written in 1969. I said that already, but I'm going to remind, listener, I'm going to remind you again and again that this was written in 1969 because it feels like it was written last week. He says, in the last generation, politicians and governments have been promising the voters that they could not only bring perpetual full employment, but also prosperity and economic growth and solve the age-old problem of poverty overnight. Now, I guess the only thing that would be different now than in 1969 is instead of poverty, we basically don't talk about poverty anymore. Hmm. We talk about inequality. Yeah. So that's what they'll solve. Uh, employment, prosperity, economic growth, inequality. But even though they fall completely short of these promises, the attempt to fulfill the promises has brought an enormous increase in government spending, an enormous increase in the burden of taxes, chronic deficits, chronic inflation, and a constant loss in the buying power of the people's earnings and savings. As the gigantic growth of governmental power increases, it has also become concentrated in fewer and fewer hands. I mean, I think he just leads off in an exciting way. And, and I, I've said to you, Kyle, off camera, off uh, microphone, I guess, that this speaks to me. I mean, this is mm -hmm. this is Corey Astle's conservatism, if there ever was. And it is super encouraging for me to know. I mean, this guy, 
you just told us worked for the New York Times. I don't think you could have a New York Times. <laughs> Anyone who's worked for the New York Times and have this kind of pragmatic, like clear-eyed view of how that how the world actually works when it comes to debts and deficit and spending into oblivion. Yeah, I don't think they'd let them have a subscription today. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it's right. It's it's it is. You know, we inflation was was ramping up in '69. I mean, p- because of all the deficits from Great Society and then from the Vietnam War. And it got worse in the 70s into that, that stagflation that we've heard about where the economy was stagnating, but still having inflation, which had never happened before. And both of those things we'd kind of forgotten about. I mean, they were before our time. We were born at the, the tail end of that decade. And I think a lot of people our age and younger don't really think about inflation because it's been like 1% a year, which is not, I mean, any inflation destroys wealth. It destroys savings, you know, but... It's not one percent you can live with, but now as things are starting to heat up a little because of the same things that Haslett's talking about here, the government is pumping tons of money into the economy. And you know, in twenty twenty, we had to do it. You know, when we shut everything down, people needed to live. But once you know, Washington got a taste for giving out that free money, and uh, I mean, the whole Georgia Senate race was about I'm going to give you a thousand dollars. I'm going to give you two thousand dollars. Right. And it was really it was. <laughs> as naked a bribe as I've ever seen in a, in a, in a Senate race or any other kind of election, you know, usually politicians at least talk about the investment, you know, or, you know, they, they, they fancy it up some kind of, you know, try to disguise it. Not just, I'm going to bribe you with your own money, <laughs> but that's what it was in, in 2020 and 20 and now into 2021. And now we're getting those first hints that, Hey, you know, uh, just dumping a bunch of money, that we've borrowed from the future into the economy now causes inflation, you know, and it's, um, it's something that, uh, I think, you know, people are good at forgetting what we've learned. And we learned that lesson the hard way in, in the time that Hazlitt was writing this book, inflation was as high. I mean, you know, if you talk, talk to people who were buying a house then or, or working then it was crazy and, you know, we kind of fixed it, but then we, have a way of forgetting that institutional knowledge, especially when the progressive mindset is to ignore the past and to, you know, or to say that it was corrupt or broken or not, you know, not what we need now. It doesn't matter. But that's the lesson we're forgetting. And it's the same thing here. He's talking about, you know, Keynesian policies of increasing spending in the depression. And, you know, the, the other half of that was supposed to be, you know, according to Keynes is that when the, uh, when the economy is good again, then you raise taxes to pay that back. You know, even, right. even even Keynes wasn't talking about running permanent deficits the way they do now. But that second part never happens. And that what I liked about this book is he talks about the ideas, and, but he also talks about the political realities, saying, you know, oh, yeah, they say they'll pay it back. But look, I, I've been around. That never happens. You know, they never. There's always there's always. A, oh, or we'll get rid of this program once the economy's good again. No, they're all still there. We're still doing New Deal programs today. So. Yeah, it was it was at once a blast from the past, but also a, a bizarrely uh, current account of what goes on when the government just prints money forever. Yeah, hundred percent. He does a great job explaining these all of these principles, all these sort of concepts. So let's dive into it a little bit. He says the theory has become fashionable that the cause of all depressions was a lack of purchasing power. The solution: government should boldly increase its own spending. That is to say, prime the pump, listener, you've heard this before, and get things moving again. And Kyle, you just brought up Keynes. And let's uh, let's get 
listener caught up if you are not already. Keynes was a British uh, economist who came up with this uh, theory that essentially government intervention is needed to stimulate the economy. And the idea is in times of when the business cycle is in a in a trough, what we need is increased uh, demand or to have some outside force step in and sort of fill in uh, for aggregate demand. And so the his idea is the government does that. The government comes in and spends a ton of money to jumpstart, prime the pump, jumpstart the economy in order to get things moving again, quote unquote. And then once it does, then the government stops spending. The idea is to sort of like when, when consumer demand wanes, it, the government steps in to start uh, to give money so that people will buy stuff. And, you know, in our economy, especially the U.S. economy today, even more so than then, is driven by services. So you have to, you know, people have to start spending money in order to make money because everyone's in a service industry almost exclusive. I mean, there are there is manufacturing, but it's really only a, a relatively small handful of uh, employment. So people need to spend. So this is a counter cyclical fiscal policy, as you described. The idea is jump in, prime the pump. I mean, priming gives sort of the, sort of the impression of let's just get it started and then we'll jump back. But as you said, that's not how it works. And he says here, uh, under this theory, people have more money to buy more goods. So at least it seems for the moment. But soon there are other consequences. In a very short time, the increase in prices and the increase in the demand for labor, wages will start climbing too. So the Keynesian medicine must lead to chronic deficits and chronic inflating of the, mon- of, of the money supply. And we'll describe that in just a minute because he does a great job of describing the money supply. But basically what he's saying here is the government steps in, starts spending a ton of money, just like in COVID. Mm-hmm. You know how much we've spent? Six trillion. The entirety of World War II cost $4 trillion in 2021 dollars, 2021 uh, currency. Six, uh, four trillion. We spent six trillion, and the Biden administration wants to spend another trillions upon trillions. They're, the the President Biden's newly released budget proposal would increase the national debt by an additional fourteen and a half trillion over the next ten years. Right now, our current our national debt sits at twenty eight trillion dollars. 10% of the federal budget goes to paying the interest on the debt, just the interest. <laughs> and he wants to spend another $14.5 In other words, all this money gets spent, 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 and then what happens? It does work for a time, and for now, like uh, the, the economy is already jumping back into, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's starting to roll, starting to rev on its own. They want to spend another multi-trillion dollars. And what that's what's that's doing, and he and he makes the argument here is what that what what happens there is there's just so much money in the economy that things start to cost more. I'll tell you what costs more: housing. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Price does. of houses. We just bought a house, and it was probably about two hundred thousand dollars more than it, uh, we would have spent about four years ago for the same house. It's sick, and everybody knows this. And you want to you want to uh, build out your basement, you know, a stud. A, you know, wood stud to for framing used to cost like two seventy five or three bucks. 
each. Now it's like seven fifty or eight dollars each. Mm-hmm. Where does that come from? Well, part of it is the supply is is not coming through, but part of it is people are just flush with money, and we'll describe that in a minute. And because of that, because there's so much money in the economy that's been pumped by the federal government, by you know, by uh, Congress and the administrations, as well as the Fed, which we'll describe in a minute. So much money, things start to cost more because there's more money available, and so people bid up. And, and, you know, these numbers get so big, I think people have a hard time even wrapping their heads around it. I, I have to do the math myself. I, we talk about $6 trillion and, you know, it's like billion, trillion, you know. I mean, these are these are numbers that whoever thinks about them. It's a lot of zeros. But, of course, a trillion is a thousand billions. And when you, when you do the math, I mean, about a $6 trillion spending is about almost $19,000 per American citizen. <laughs> It's in one year, you know? Yeah. We weren't paying 19000 in taxes per person, you know? I mean, that's not even close. And and we couldn't without squeezing all the life out of the economy. I mean, that, that kind of taxation, some people are paying that much in taxes, but not, not the majority. I mean, because that's a lot of money. So, I mean, it's sometimes I, I try to break it down per capita just to get my head around exactly how much $6 trillion is, because it's crazy and i i don't know if joe biden knows i mean i don't think he's a math guy so i don't know and and let's be fair the republicans didn't exactly put the brakes on spending when they held uh congress and the presidency it wasn't it wasn't as bad as this but i don't know that the moral high ground matters anymore in a political argument i mean i think it should but you lose it when as soon as you get in power you do the opposite of the thing you always said you were going to do you know and it wasn't just COVID. I mean, they were spending before that. So it, I, I think what's going on now is completely unhinged. Uh, what was going on a couple of years ago was excessive, <laughs> but they're both they're both bad. It's a it's a matter of degree. But I, um, to get back to the to what Hazlitt was saying, I, I think he makes a good point about just the reason that markets are important and the market should determine prices and wages is not because the market is imbued with any moral goodness. It's not a God, you know, it's, but what it is, is the best way of telling how much things actually cost and how much things actually can be supplied and actually can be demanded. You know, when, when the Keynesians talk about, you know, he he has let goes to this, when industry is down 25%, say we hear that, you know, and we hear, Oh, manufacturing outputs are down 30%. Oh, that's bad. But that doesn't mean that every factory is down 30%. It means, you know, some of them are have closed their doors. Some of them are a little off. Some of them are doing better. Yeah. And how do you know which one is which? Well, you don't. I mean, not in real time. Years later, you might find out based on income tax filings that take years to finally get to the government and get amended and whatnot. But at the time the government's pumping all this money out, it's just guesswork. They're flooding the zone. And... So some of that money, it might go to people who need it in the moment. Some of it are going to people who are doing fine. And some of it are going to people who are doing better. And there were businesses that did better during the pandemic. Uh, I know somebody represents a plexiglass company. And let me tell you, they made out like bandits. <laughs> right. You know, if you made masks or any of these things, I mean, these were weird niche industries before. And all of a sudden, you were the toast of the town. But they were also eligible for all those government spending. It doesn't make sense, but that's what you do when you're, when it's, you know, all this power concentrated in a few hands, they can't know as well as 
anybody in these industries what is happening, what is costing more, what is costing less. They just, just throw the money at it, and it unbalances everything. And that's sort of the, the hangover of all this spending. Because he admits it'll work the first, you know, first few months, first year maybe. But then you've cheapened your currency. You've you've laid out a bunch of debt that you're going to have to pay back, or more likely your kids and grandkids are going to have to pay back. That's going to limit you in the future because you know you now you can spend, but when that number that you mentioned about ten percent of the budget going to debt service, when that's fifty percent, then what are we going to cut? Right? You know? Are we going to be defenseless? cut our military are we going to cut all these welfare programs are we going to just raise taxes so high that nothing can function nobody's thinking about that of course take out debt to service the debt that's the most likely outcome yeah but eventually that stops i mean i think that that'll go on for a while because the dollar is still the strongest and the and you know we haven't officially defaulted although as haslett says when you inflate time and time again you're effectively defaulting on debt you know when you borrowed this money in 1930 dollars and you pay it back 20 years later in 1950 dollars that you know those aren't the same dollars but that's what you know so there's you know there's that's that's an effective default but it's not a real default so as long as america is a little less shady about our money than the eu and china and all the other big powers we'll be able to do it for a while but eventually it will catch up with you other countries will get their acts together canada has they did a few years ago because they couldn't borrow at reasonable prices anymore because they were doing all of this stuff same as we were, but they didn't have the American dollar. Yeah. So they had to get real, just like Greece did, just like the EU is starting to have to. You know, we haven't had to, but eventually we will because once everybody else does and we're the still the spendthrift nation, then all the, that, that cachet that goes with the dollar being reserve currency. Oh, we'll still borrow dollars. We'll still put money into America because it's the safest. Eventually that won't be true anymore. If we keep up doing this while other people get their act together. So yeah, I mean, we'll roll that debt over as long as we can. And then eventually you're going to have to pay the piper. You and I might be dead by then, but you know, our, our kids won't be, our no. grandkids won't be. They'll be. That's, that's what he talks about. What, you know, the, 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 um, the sort of slogan of why we should spend all this money is we owe it to ourselves. You know, we owe it to ourselves yeah. to, you know, to do better. And I can see that, you know, after the country had been through a depression, been through a world war and all of this, and we're fighting the cold war. It's like, yeah, we deserve nice things. I get that. But you know, what does the future deserve? You know, what, what, what do our kids deserve? Do they deserve to pay our debts? I, I don't think they do. Um, no. I, but that part's again never discussed. It's all about you know this year's budget, this year's reelection, and that's I mean that's that's the way people think. It's hard it's hard to take a long view until you have to. But I think that day is getting closer every time we pass another trillion dollars of debt. Absolutely. So, listener, indulge us for a second because I'd like to take a little bit of a tangent. Hazlitt does that by describing how some of this works for the Fed and. You know, you probably took an econ class and probably understand this, but for those who don't, he says the government creates new debt by selling bonds to the banking system. And if the banks pay for them by creating deposit credits on their books in favor of the government, this leads to an increase in the money supply. That is an increase in either the amount of currency or of demand bank deposits. The idea is what's happening now is Biden decides that he wants to spend on this last bill, $2.9 trillion, and every bit of it is paid for through debt, deficit financed. So the Treasury, the Department of Treasury, sells these bonds, 
government uh, T-bills in the marketplace, but as a practical matter, they're bought up completely by the U.S. Federal Reserve. So our own, our own uh, central bank buys up the bonds, and by doing so, sort of like collects the debt of basically the American economy. There was a long time where we were saying that the Chinese were buying our debt, mm-hmm. and uh, and I think for a while it was a higher percentage. At this point, I, I don't know what the percentage is, but it's it's like eighty or ninety percent is American bought, and and so much of that is being bought by the Fed right now. So actually, the Chinese got wise to this whole story, based on what you were just saying. Uh, the reserve currency being the U.S. I mean, they would they want the reserve currency to be the you know so the the Chinese uh, yuan, and so. Th- there is some Japanese buying our debt. There is some Chinese, but mostly these are Americans buying the debt. So pr- probably our own, um, you know, institutional funds as well as the Federal Reserve. So the Federal Reserve buys these and just keeps it on their books and just has trillions and trillions of dollars of these bonds. So it's kind of like selling to ourselves. I mean, l- quite literally selling to ourselves. And then the Federal Reserve also buys right now is started in the last like uh, decade buying up mortgage-backed securities. Remember, mortgage-backed securities is what caused the financial crisis in the first place. Right, right. But uh, they're buying these more, uh, Fannie and Freddie, which are essentially government, uh, quasi-government agencies. So, uh, take these mortgages, yours and mine, dice them up, sell them as stocks, like as securities, and the Federal Reserve buys them up. So by doing that, though, he says, when member banks, so when, 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 the Fed basically buys these government bonds. They create money out of thin air because the, the money is really like government promises to itself. And so it gives, it's almost the, what the Treasury and Fed are doing is, 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 is kind of like a, is a smoke and mirrors like three card Monty where they just kind of move it around. Mm-hmm. And then it creates, because the Fed is ostensibly like put, buying the bond, it's putting more money into the economy. And uh, by doing that, and then also keeping the interest rates so incredibly low, um, essentially there's more money out there than there has been maybe ever. And the more money there is, the, the, the easier it is for people to access credit. And banks are more willing to loan, uh, to lend, and interest rates are low. So people, 15 years ago, they could afford a $400,000 house, but the interest rates are so low that now they can afford a $550,000 house because we're talking about the monthly payment that matters. When the interest rate's low, it means your monthly payment is lower over the life of a 30-year loan, 30-year amortization. So suddenly everybody can afford more. And so that even puts even more money out there because the banks are lending. So this is how prices rise. This, this, is, how, uh, this is how inflation is created because ultimately like, we're not actually creating more goods and services. It's just costing more. The same, like I just said, the same house is probably $200,000 more now than it was four years ago. I mean, literally that high, but it's the same product. Mm-hmm. So we're actually not gaining things. <laughs> it's just going up in price. Yeah. He, he made a great point about that too, because it's, he said that you can't inflate your way out of poverty because you just, you know, it's just, it's just adding extra zeros, you know, to everything, you know, it, like we see in other countries do this, you know, you see the, the hyperinflation those from Zimbabwe from a few years ago. Like, well, we printed more money. We're all richer now, right? But everyone knew it was fake. I mean, and you didn't have to have an economics degree to know it was fake. People figure it out pretty quick when 
oh, I got paid more, but now every price went up. I'm not actually richer. Hazlitt's point is the way you get out of poverty is by more production. And if you produce more, you're actually creating something of value. Because what is money except a claim on the ability to purchase goods and services? Yeah, and I should have said that the Fed, where does the Fed get its money? It's just not sitting on a big bank. It's sitting on a printing press. So Mm -hmm. if it wants to buy uh, treasury bonds, it just prints the money. They're the ones who print the dollars. So they print all the Benjamins and just get it out there. So money that didn't exist in the economy now is there because it was printed by the Fed and put out there. And like you said, in Zimbabwe and in many other countries, essentially all other countries around the world, you can't get away with that. I mean, Argentina, you can't get away with it because ultimately people, you know, in, in, uh, in you know, Weimar Germany or whatever, the, mm-hmm. the inflation, the hyperinflation meant that whatever you bought in the morning is now twice as expensive that afternoon or whatever. I mean, we're not in that at that point here in America, but it's within the grasp, you know, it's within reach, you know, victory is, is within our grasp to be, uh, to be be in that same situation, printing out money, uh, selling debt to ourselves, you know, playing this parlor trick. Anyway, it's frustrating. And I, I think he, I mean, I think he lights this up, highlights it so clearly. And the game is no different. 60, what? Yeah. 60 years later. Yeah. And there, I mean, there's, there's some things in this book that are kind of out of date, but not really. I mean, uh, when I, first started reading it there was a whole chapter about the gold standard and how that exchange worked before 1973 or so when we took the dollar fully off gold and i was reading i'm like oh we don't need to know about that because every nation in the world has currency that's just like what Corey just described it's their national banks print it and if you're responsible that can still work you know if you have a balanced budget and you don't just throw free money out there your money will stay the same and the fact that it's good for, you know, the government accepts the dollar as legal tender means it's legal tender. People people in the country will think it's real. People around the world think it's real. And even other countries do business in our dollar. I mean, some countries don't even do their own money anymore. They just go on the dollar because they realized how bad they were at it. And they would have this hyperinflation problem. And they knew, you know, their politicians were just going to do the same thing again. So, all right, we'll go on the American dollar. They, they can be trusted to have very low inflation. But I saw something today that the president of El Salvador, which does use the U.S. dollar as its currency, is proposing a bill in their Congress to make Bitcoin legal tender. Hmm. Wow. And that's that's kind of wild because, you know, I mean, I've, I'm not a computer guy. I didn't really know what Bitcoin was until it, was, it had been around a while. I still don't totally know how it works. But I know it is mostly immune to inflation because it can only be produced by these algorithms that the computers do. And it's it's... It more is produced, but not as much as, you know, any other fake currency around the world. So here's here's a country that turned to the U.S. monetary system as a way of defeating inflation in their own land. And now they're starting to look elsewhere. And El Salvador is a small country. You know, I, I don't think this is going to shake the faith of the world in the U.S. dollar. But they're the first to ever do this. And this is a if – it, if it passes, and, it, you know, it may not. I'm sure our people there are going to lobby against it really hard. But it, it changes a lot because that that's like almost like going back to a gold standard because this is yeah, you can't yeah. you can't fake the Bitcoin any more than you could fake having gold in your vaults. You know, it exists and it is, you know, it's it measure. It is measurable. 
it cannot be just uh, it produced on a printing press the way dollars and, and pounds and euros are. So that was, I thought that was interesting. And it's, um, it should be a shock. I don't know if it will be, but um, I mean, economics bloggers were talking about it, but I, I don't know. I hope somebody's listening. Cause I think, I think that's kind of a shot across the bow of the, the whole, the whole world financial system, because it's not like they're turning to China and saying your money's good here. Yeah. They're turning to this uh, 21st century cryptocurrency and saying, we trust this about as much as we trust what used to constitute real money. And that's, yeah, that is shocking. No, I agree with you on the on, on both points. The first point being, I don't understand it. And the second point <laughs> being, it really feels like that's probably the future in a hundred years that uh, we'll get out of the business of central banks. Um, I mean, so I, I mean, I think it was the right decision to get off the gold standard, but that's probably a conversation for another day because mm-hmm. it's uh, be very, very complex. But yeah, I agree. But yeah, let's put the pin in that. All right. He says uh, there's a there's a sequence that always follows the welfare state. He says first, the welfare state promises special subsidies or other benefits to this or that pressure group. This increases its expenditures, but it dare not boost taxes enough to meet these increased expenditures fully. We're facing that right now with a big infrastructure bill. We're facing that right now with all this, the, the COVID stuff, some of which was related to COVID. Much of it had nothing at all to do with COVID <laughs> in, the, in the last COVID package. Um, you know, you have a, an, an expansion of the child tax credit that costs a trillion dollars. Um, we're, not, we're not boosting taxes to pay for that. So, he says, the government runs a deficit and pays for it by printing more paper money. So, the Fed... You know, we're paying for it by selling these bonds basically to ourselves as a government and uh, printing money to pay for our bonds. This lowers the value of the currency unit by causing more money to be offered for the same supply of goods. The result is a price increase. That's inflation that we just described. And the next step of the inflating government is to blame the price rise on sellers, on big business, Mm -hmm. on those profiteers. (laughs) And so the next step after that is to put ceilings on prices in order to force them to roll back and pr- to, to protect the customer. <laughs> uh, and that happened a few right. years after this book was written. Exactly. Yeah. So yes, absolutely. So you had Nixon putting price, price controls on gasoline. And what happened? Lines. Yeah. I mean, it, and they know. I mean, they'll do it again. I mean, if, it, if, if this... I don't think this bill will pass as big as Biden wants it to pass. I mean, I think it's going to get cut down a bit, but it's still going to be too big. And there will be price increases. There already are. I mean, even when the government was selling us, there was no inflation. Everybody went to the grocery store and knew stuff was more expensive last year. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I was seeing the price of meat, the price of eggs. It was all going up. And it wasn't doubling. But, uh, you know, you look at your bill when you get to the register and you're like, oh, I didn't buy anything different. That's Absolutely. That's yeah. more, you know. Uh, so uh, we all knew it. We all saw it. And that's, I think that's at the heart of this too, is the go- inflation is a government lie and the people see through it pretty quickly because, you know, the campaign promises of the, of the, the utopia that's going to be created with all of the spending, people might believe that people want to believe that it sounds great, but as soon as those prices start going up, especially if they go up faster than everybody's wages are going up as they usually do, uh, people see through it pretty quickly. I think um, what they do about it. I mean, so, you know, a lot of times 
people just vote for the same party again. They're oh, we're, well, we're not doing it hard enough. We need to, you know, we just, you know, we need to do it more. Then the policy will work. Well, you blame Costco, right? I mean, yeah, we just, uh, we just, we just bought a roast from Costco, and I swear it was like, it's, the, it's normally like uh, for two roasts or whatever, it's fifteen dollars, and we ended up paying twenty two. And I'm just like, freak, that's <laughs> that's expensive. Yeah, and. Uh, and so, you know, what, uh, you know, certain folks are going to do is they're going to, instead of saying like the inflated prices are a major problem, they're going to turn around and say, Costco, you were raising prices to make. In fact, Costco has a sign in near the meat that says, look, guys, we're not raising these prices. We're yeah. just passing them along. <laughs> we, we can't take, we can't, we can't keep taking losses. Now I don't want to be a, an apologist for Costco because honestly, I don't, you know, I don't know the specifics, um, of, of that, but, uh, but I will say there's a different reaction. And I think, and I'm not just saying, uh, you know, Democrats will, he, what he says is that, uh, that the, the welfare state supporters will turn around and blame big business or those who are doing the selling for raising prices when they're just reacting to the market conditions. And that's not, and, uh, sort of that attitude of like business, big business, especially did this to us. That's not just a democratic thing. It's not just a liberal thing. There are plenty of, uh, folks on the right, conservatives, uh, who, who are just as eager. I mean, I think Trump was in this camp, like threaten, um, companies to don't move your, you know, keep prices low or, or don't move your facilities and stuff like that. Um, and so it's kind of like a, almost more of a human reaction than, than one political side or the other, but it's, uh, but it's founded on, on error. For sure. And he, you know, Haslow talks about this, about how, that's the problem with price controls too is that every price is interrelated and to know you know for costco to know what to charge for that roast they have to know how much how much the meat cost from the meat packer they bought it from which is related to how much the animal cost and how much the staff at that place cost and costco has to know their own staff and and the rent on the building and you know all these things go into it and the government doesn't know any of it and even if they hire the brightest economists who can really get close to some of these answers they don't know what's changing minute to minute. They don't, you know, and they can't, no one could. Um, that's what markets are good at is they're good at, at telling us these things. They're, they're good at, at getting something from point A to point B and getting a, a price that is not set by anyone, but it, it, it comes out to what makes it all work. Uh, and, but you're right. It's easier to, you know, it, I, that kind of goes back to our conspiracy theory episode too. I think when people, oh, yeah. it's just these these big corporations raising prices, boy. You know, it's it's always somebody else with a nefarious plot. And I'm not saying big corporations wouldn't raise prices, but it's not like Costco is the only place you can buy meat. You know, the competition. There's lots of supermarkets. If they're yeah. all raising prices, you've got to either believe that the inputs are more expensive now. Or there's a great conspiracy theory, and they're all meeting at the country club to discuss how much to raise the price of the roast. You know, and I, I don't believe that. I don't think it would hold up if they tried. You know, I don't think cartels work that well in a free economy because somebody always says, well, you know, if I'm the one who cuts, then I can make, I can make a, a mint. You know, right. there's, you know, they're competing against each other. As much as they don't like to make money, those things don't really work. So. I think it is that kind of conspiratorial thinking. Um, and it, it's, um, Hazlitt is probably softer on monopolies as an idea than I am, but he does make some good points about how, you know, the, the way to protect the consumer, the way to get fair prices is through competition in the, in a market economy, right, not, not right. through somebody at the, 
Department of Commerce or whatever, just sending out a list of this is what stuff costs now. Because you know, yeah. the Soviets tried this. They try, you know, that's a managed economy. You have to you have to figure that out every month what everything costs. That's crazy. Like that's that's way too much work for any government in the world. And so, like you said, it's sort of conspiratorial thinking. It would be too hard to, and we've seen cartels in in practice. Very difficult. Much easier to be a monopoly yourself. Very difficult to to manage an actual cartel because they're always going to be cheaters. But the government's response many times has, has still been to do essentially the same thing, and that is price fix. And he says, all these price fixing schemes follow a typical course. It is soon discovered that the price of the commodity cannot be raised unless the supply is first reduced. This may lead to the imposition of acreage restrictions. So we have this in sugar. You know, we have this in in uh, milk dairy production. Mm-hmm. We have this in several areas where there's essentially a quota. But the problem is the higher prices gives an incentive to producers to increase their average yield, which is essentially the same as in a cartel, how you cheat. Yeah. <laughs> and the government then turns to imposing absolute quantitative controls on producers, essentially saying like, okay, well, whatever you produce on average over the last uh, five years, that's that's how much you can produce now. So basically jumping in there too. And this is a conversation we've had in, in, in multiple podcasts about the only way to, to make things equal is to level those at the top and, and just push them down. That's the only that's the only way it works. And it's the same with price fixing. That's the only way it works. The result of this quota system is to keep out all new competition, to lock out all existing producers into their previous relative position and therefore keep production costs high. I mean, this is the dairy industry, and I'm sorry, listener, if you you're in that industry, but it is frustrating to me to to see sugar, same thing. All these schemes require the setting up of an elaborate system of controls, basically the Soviet system, right? Mm-hmm. And an elaborate bureaucracy to formulate and enforce them. I mean, that's what you have to have. You have to have uh, a ministry of price controls. <laughs> these have to be elaborate because each individual producer must be controlled because each individual producer is going to try to pursue or his own self-interest by increasing their uh, their production or changing their crop to be like, oh, actually, this one pays even more now. So uh, I'm allowed this amount of acreage. And so what I'm going to do is just uh, double up on what I, I already have. Anyway, it yeah. doesn't work. No, I mean, it's stupid. You're describing uh, Pennsylvania's milk marketing board. Exactly. Uh, we Yeah, that's always I think about half the states do it that way. And it's uh, you know, all the dairy states. I mean, it's been that way for a while. And it's everybody buys milk, but it's also been this way so long you probably don't even notice it. But it, it it's a bizarrely complex system with a big bureaucracy that is really just trying to replicate something that takes none of that. It's nuts. It's, it's one of the few really old school kind of New Deal remnants of government that still exists. I don't know if they have that out where you are, but yeah, here it's yeah the price is, is it is what it is, and there's there's no sale on milk. <laughs> you know, it's it's never, <laughs> it's never on sale. It's one of the instead it just gets dumped. Yeah, <laughs> and that's the other thing. Milk, it does right. Dumped. It gets you you hear about that, and it's like, well, if it's getting dumped, something is wrong, and. <laughs> If something it is gets wrong, dumped and then it becomes an environmental like brownfield. Yeah, <laughs> they're dumping it in the river. And when something's yeah. wrong that big, it's usually because there's a government rule about it. So, yeah, these things that they it's like uh, trying to squeeze a balloon. You know, the air always goes to a different spot. Yeah, you, you that's can't a great you can't do it um, because you're trying to 
you're trying to replicate a million decisions that are being made spontaneously and simultaneously in the market. You're trying to do them all by decree and get them all right. And it's, it's impossible. I don't, I don't, I don't think the most efficient government in the world could get it right. The Germans couldn't yeah. do it when they were socialist in the East, you know, and who's better at that sort of thing than the Germans, but they couldn't do it. Nobody could. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's, it is a, you know, the, the kind of utopian thinking that Haslett's talking about here, it never, ever pans out. Yeah. And he, yeah, he's got a lot more too, that we're not going to have time to get to tonight. Um, there's, I mean, he has a lot of stuff about, uh, guaranteed income, which. Yeah. Let's talk about that real quick. We'll get we into it a little because, because they, cause it is up again. It's he, he starts, let me say this and you, then you take you it. Ahead, yeah. He starts by saying all of the, the, so, so back in 1969, same as now, same debate, guaranteed basic income. We call it universal basic income now. And he says, uh, these folks, the proponents, think it should be an absolute absolute constitutional right to an income. We've heard that over and over again lately because mm-hmm. of equality or so forth. And he says, ne- this is great. Nearly all of them seem to share the belief that the growth of automation and cybernation is eliminating jobs so fast, or soon will be, that there just won't be jobs for even the most industrious. <laughs> uh, the continuing impact of technological change will make it impossible to provide jobs for all who seek them. Does that sound like Andrew Yang at all? <laughs> I mean, does that sound like uh, half the the uh, the technocrats on the left saying, we have got to do something now before the robots take over? And it turns out, this is the same argument. He says, the fears of permanent unemployment as a result of technological progress are as old as the Industrial Revolution, been constantly reiterated for 40 years, and just as often completely refuted. I just love that because it's <laughs> 60 years later, same conversation, same argument. It was almost like it was just lifted. You know, nothing, you know, I guess there's just there's nothing new under the sun. You know, that meme. Yeah, it, it is crazy. Yeah, he's talking about something that, I mean, and it's funny because 10 years ago, I don't think anybody outside of like a real socialist fringe was talking about universal basic income. Uh-huh. But it's back, you know, and it's just like it was in his day. And it, it you know, I mean, it's for all the... There's a million reasons why it won't work, and he goes into it. And this book, I would say, is very readable and straightforward. You can you could tell, he you could tell he was a newspaper writer, and I mean that as a as a compliment because he explained yeah. things really well. He explains uh, some pretty complex economic ideas in in terms that a reader can understand. I mean, I wouldn't say it's dumbed down. I mean, it's still you still have to think about it, but it's it's if you're an intelligent reader can read this and. It, it it goes by quickly. He's a very smooth writer and uh, gets the gets the point across great. But yeah, universal basic income. It just there's no way to work it. One thing he points out that it's either going to be so low that it doesn't make a difference, like the Alaska Permanent Fund, you know, where they uh-huh. all everybody who's in Alaska gets a, a share of the oil revenues from the lands that the state owns. And it's like it's nice, but it, it it's not going to change anyone's life. It's not going to you know, you're not going to be able to quit your job. You're not going to be able to buy a house. You're not going to be able to do much. So that that is affordable, though, because the state actually has that money. To make it so that it would actually, like, replace all of the poverty programs and then some and actually lift anyone out of poverty, it would have to be so costly that, it, you know, these $6 trillion and, and $10 trillion that we're talking about are a drop in the bucket. There's, no, there's not enough wealth in the country 
and we're a very wealthy country, but it's just, it isn't there. And he also makes a great point, I think, and that, and, and that you hear this from UBI advocates today. Oh, well, it'll replace all the existing welfare systems, right? We've got all these overlapping programs and they're complicated with different bureaucracies. And that's true. So we'll just wipe all that out. Start over with this one check from one agency. You know, it, everybody gets it simple. You don't have to have all the bureaucratic costs, blah, blah, blah. But he makes the point, and, and which we all know to be true, is that they'll pass UBI, and then somebody will say, okay, now we don't need uh, Social Security and Medicare, right? And they'll say, whoa, <laughs> yeah. do you hate old people? Yeah. Do you hate little kids or oh, the survivor's benefits uh, and blind people? No, we can't get rid of this. people. So yeah, We can't get not, rid of food stamps? Right. People are going to start. There will be kids starving in the streets. Do you want people to die? <laughs> we can't get rid of that. So... Nothing will change except more will be added on top of it. And Absolutely. He, he's 100% right. I was nodding my head along with this book as I was reading it. So that's exactly how they'll go. Because they'll do that two-step. And unless they repeal it first and then pass the UBI, I'm not going to believe it. And even then, I don't believe it. They'll bring it back. <laughs> you know, it's he's, he's dead on with that. 100%. Couldn't agree more. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to double what you just said. It's actually a pretty easy read, even though it's... Um, it's technical stuff, mm-hmm. but uh, in a couple hours, you could read most of it. Feel like you, you know, got it, got it down. All right, that's Hazlitt. Catch us next time.